Welcome to CryoTalk, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Featuring conversations between your host, Ava Amson, and experts in the field of cryo-electron microscopy. Today on CryoTalk, we are joined by Mike Tanfrocco, Research Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan Life Sciences Institute and the University of Michigan Medical School. We're talking about his diverse research interests. I still like being under the hood in CryoEM and also helping people use CryoEM. And so that's sort of the two sides of my personality. The tools he's building for CryoEM users. If we could leverage the the investments that the government has made in supercomputers, we could help the structural biology community. And his gardening skills. My lab, I think, would like me to bring more of the tomatoes and peppers that I grow in. All in this episode of CryoTalk. Hi, and welcome to CryoTalk. I'm Ava Amson, and I'm here today with Mike Chanfrocco, Research Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan Life Sciences Institute and Assistant Professor in the Department of Biological Chemistry at the University of Michigan Medical School. His research group not only uses CryoEM as a tool to study structural biology, but he also develops tools for CryoEM, and we'll hear a bit more about that in this episode. So, Mike, how are you today? Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so we always um, ask our guests to start off by telling a little bit about your career so far. So how did you get to where you are now? Well, that's a big question, I guess. Um, for me, I started by, at some point during college, falling in love with protein structure because I had taken chemistry classes. And then by the third year of college, taking a biochemistry class and at that point discovered how enzymes work. And it was amazing that they were connecting you know, organic chemistry with biology and protein function. And then I think that coupled with being a very visual person that I was just really drawn to what proteins look like. And then just diving into all the, you know, pymol and then later chimera, looking at protein structures always like drew me along. And then to where I am today, as far as cryo-EM, I started grad school knowing that I wanted to do protein structure, but I wasn't sure exactly where I'd fit in. Mm. And it was during you know, rotations in labs. I rotated with Ava Nogales' lab. And I, because I'm a visual person, I think there's something really satisfying about looking at proteins. Yeah. And I even remember when I was in undergrad, there were even, even back then, not too long ago, you could, there were images from cryo-EM or negative stain-EM in textbooks of like, you know, ATP synthase or different things. And always amazed to like, that, that's what they look like. So for me, that was always the draw was ice. This is what proteins look like. And then it was early days in cryo-EM, but the, the Nagal's lab was just doing really cool work, applying it to interesting systems like microtubules and transcription. And that sort of was my lead into it. And then it, because doing cryo-EM, you know, in 2007, 2008, you had to know Linux and command line, which I didn't when I started. And I mm-hmm. learned on the way. But then that that became the fodder for sort of future computational development because I was really learned like the nuts and bolts of how a lot of cryoEM software worked. And then it was after my PhD that looking for a postdoctoral fellowship lab, I went to um, Andreas Schlesinger's lab and then Sam Reich Peterson's lab. And I knew I wanted to keep doing cryoEM. I wanted to keep also becoming really independent in cryoEM, but then picking up a system. And that was in the Reich Peterson lab of dynein microtubule trafficking. And then those became the parallel threads that are in my lab, which is we're studying microtubule-based trafficking with motor proteins and different cargos. And then I still like 
being under the hood in CryoEM and also helping people use CryoEM. And so that's sort of the two sides of my personality that I think if you were to meet me and talk to me, you'd see that I'm passionate about both. And we'll talk <laughs> about both at length, um, which I think is sort of maybe surprising to some people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was I was really interested in the, in in reading a bit about the computational tools that you're working on. Can you tell me a bit about that? So the one that I'm that's been a work in progress for a while that I'm excited to have taking off is this science gateway for CryoEM that's called Cosmic Two. Mm -hmm. And so for people who haven't heard of it yet, the idea was we want to connect scientists to supercomputers or to cloud resources without any sort of process and headache. And so I discovered when I was a postdoc that the NSF funds initiatives where they will give you money to build a website that sits on top of a supercomputer. And so in the United States, the National Science Foundation funds supercomputers all of, over the United States, and they're freely available, but you have to pay, you have to apply for time to get on them. And so the idea was if I wrote a platform and designed the platform, and then I applied for the the computing time, then I could share it with structural biologists or anyone who wanted to use it. Because prior to this, I had been tinkering with and dabbling in different kinds of public cloud providers like Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud. And they're, they're really powerful and nice, but they're expensive. And so the NSF route meant that it was free. Mm. And so that's what was always appealing is that if we could leverage the, the investments that the government has made in supercomputers, we could help the structural biology community. And so, so this you're... web platform, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I just wanted to clarify, you're basically giving um, other biologists a chance to use the supercomputer time through the platform. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's nice about it is that it's, it, I, I guess I've always found really satisfying to help people mm. do science and learn science and learn structural biology. And so I think this hits at some part of my personality that I just find rewarding is to help put tools in. So in, in general, the whole web platform, none of the software we wrote I just connect people. Like I can speak both languages. I think I have enough empathy of the end users who don't understand Linux command lines, high performance computers, but I also can talk to the developers to think through how to put tools in or what steps can we, you know, make easier or, or things like that. And so the platform was originally built for CryoEM because it was, this is when I proposed this four years ago, it was still coming up. Now it's much more established, but it, since then, a big revolution happened, which was protein structure prediction. Mm. And so most of the jobs we run today are actually related to protein structure prediction mm. and AlphaFold and mm. um, CollabFold and all those things. And I think that's what we're leaning into as far as helping. Now, now it's no longer just cryoEM. It's anyone in life sciences research now. It's not even just structural biologists because people are using it for protein structure prediction for you know cell biology labs, like biochemistry labs. Everyone is is using it. And so that I'm excited to see that it's taking off. And so we're up to around 800 users and almost 7,000 jobs submitted. Mm, and so it wow. feels, it feels satisfying to see that it's actually yeah. taking off and I can see the sweet spot of where a niche could be for this platform moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that kind of brings me to my next question. Um, if you uh, look at what you, what you see happening in CryoEM, so do you see it being used in, in different applications now? Yes, I mean, cryoEM is being used um, all over life sciences research for sure. Mm. I think the, the thing that I think about is how do we how do we help all those people come into the field and use it without a lot of headaches? And I think for people who do cryoEM, there's a lot of there's a lot of steps that still are kind of manual interventions or there's sort of things that you might need to learn. And so I think the other side of the algorithm development that we've done in my lab is try to 
capture expertise into expert expertise into machine learning algorithms. And so I think I'm, my eye is usually on those people. Let's say you have a, you know, I don't know, let's say a yeast biologist or a plant biologist who they don't, don't care about cryoam, they don't care about Fourier transforms, they do want to know the structure of their protein. And so how do you help them do that without, you know, mm. well, giving them the tools to be rigorous and to interpret things correctly, but also not get into the weeds if they don't want to. And so I think that's one, that's the other side of the algorithm development that we work on. And I think the, it's a, sometimes it feels funny to think about because if that side of the lab goes super well, then like all of our expertise becomes, you know, that side of our expertise is no longer needed. <laughs> um, and so the, you know, decade plus of time doing cryoEM may become, you know, not as relevant for single particle, which I guess is what progress and technology usually means. Um, but that's, it's, it's, a, it's a funny project, especially, you know, if you're trying to engineer yourself out of something, um, if you work, what happens next? <laughs> and, and in the, in the, over the course of your research, have you ever, um, has there ever been a moment where things took a surprising turn? Yeah, I mean, I think probably one of the bigger ones was during my PhD project in the Nagala's lab, where we were working on this transcription factor complex. And this is before we had direct detectors and all the mm -hmm. fancy things that we have today. But we still could see the protein that I wanted to study, which was a transcription factor called TF2D. And we knew DNA was binding to it. But we couldn't figure out how. And it was at a Gordon conference, at a small research conference, when I was just you know redoing a bunch of like kind of structural biology controls and recalculating reconstructions that I was looking at the data and realized that it actually had essentially I summarized in a weird way where a, a piece had moved like 200 angstroms away from where it was before, but it still looked like a V shape. And so it was confusing because it looks like in both states, they're a V, but if you look really carefully, you realize that things got swapped. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, to me, that was a really satisfying discovery because it explained my PhD work, which was very helpful, but it also was like, I could go back to data before I was in the lab and see it there. So it was one of those things where mm -hmm. like your eyes got open and then you could see it everywhere. And it was, it was always there. And so it was really satisfying to be going to, previous data sets I never had touched, I can look at it and then find it all there. So it was like a really satisfying discovery in that respect too. Yeah, that's amazing when that happens, when things suddenly make sense. And... <laughs> yeah, I, I was also really worried that like when I was, when I graduated that like no one was going to be able to repeat it. So I was also satisfied mm. to see all the work that <laughs> the, the Nagala's lab has done to to see and really define the mechanism from the sort of very low resolution blobs. I was, but I'm mostly satisfied to see that I wasn't totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's always good to know. Yeah. Um. So what are you looking forward to in your career over the next few years? I mean, I guess it depends on which, which hat I'm wearing. And so I guess to answer that a few different ways, the, I guess we're talking about computational parts of cryo-EM. I mean, I think I'm interested in thinking about how we can use the revolutions in AI and machine learning for cryo-EM, but with respect to either automating cryo-EM or automating analysis routines in cryo-EM. So that way we can feel good about the results we get. They're also faster. It lets experts cruise through data sets much more easily. It lets new users come in and not have to worry about getting in the weeds. So I'm excited about that. I think for the Cosmic 2 platform for sort of delivering cloud computing, I think it's leaning into all of the protein structure prediction. And then on the heels of protein structure prediction is all the protein design and other kind of structural biology analysis tools. I think helping life scientists, life scientists researchers use those via this platform is one of my visions for myself. Along those lines would be bridging into tomography for the platform. So definitely all the cryotomographers have 
even more of a computational hurdle than single particle cryo EM. Mm -hmm. And so trying to support that community as well with tools. For the biology side, I mean, I'm honestly, to introduce what we're studying, we're trying to study cargo trafficking with motor proteins on microtubules, so kinesins and dynines. And I'm excited to try and reconstitute different types of cargos with motor proteins to figure out how it's regulated. And so we have a few different projects that are sort of working on right now, but um, that's what I'm excited to see go, especially with respect to connecting tomography to just, but in vitro purified protein. So very complicated in vitro systems, but doing tomography and looking at structures of motors on cargos is, is also where I'm excited to go. Ooh, sounds exciting. <laughs> and, and what do you do when you're not working? Well, these days, I mean, I have, I have two little kids that I'm with every day and they're great. When I'm not with them, I'm, we have a house in Ann Arbor and we have lots of gardens that we take care of. And so the hobby is vegetable gardening mm -hmm. and growing food and cooking food. And, you know, which in between the lines is, is like a lot of weeding, right? Gardening is essentially <laughs> weeding, weed control weeding. Um, but yeah, excited mostly to do all different kinds of tomatoes, peppers, vegetables. You know, we like eating food and cooking and also growing. Cool. So what, what have you made with food from your own garden? Oh, lots of things. I mean, I think my, my lab, I think would like me to bring more of the tomatoes and peppers that I grow in, but I end up, you know, preserving it all and like either canning it or freezing it and cooking it because we're excited to just keep it and use it into the winter. Um, mm. So either it's hot sauces from the peppers or tomato sauces or things from the tomatoes and salads, Ooh. like everything. There's a lot of different vegetables. I've been growing tomatoes, but they're they're not turning red. And I recently found out it's because we've had a heat wave in the UK and that's like stopping them from turning red. And oh, it's really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> You're just watching yeah. them and waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're pretty much done, just the wrong color. <laughs> sometimes I also imagine that the gardening that we do is like what you also would expect from like an assistant professor's garden, where it's like a lot of ideas really excited <laughs> a lot of things happening that i'm sure will be pruned down as we move on or as you come to grips with reality but there's a lot of a lot of things happening <laughs> and um do you prefer the countryside or the city i mean it, we the house we live in we didn't imagine that we would be living here when we moved in arbor five years ago we were mostly had to find a place to live in short time because we were expecting our second child and so we were looking to live closer to the campus but then mm -hmm lived outside of or on the outskirts and we've mostly been leaning into that now we don't know how long we'll live like with such space we never had this much space in our life and so it's just been you know leaning into that and having lots of things growing everywhere <laughs> and um what what else do you do do you like reading do you have any book recommendations <laughs> reading I, I feel like I used to read a lot more when I was in grad school and as a <laughs> postdoc and I feel like I've read less um, the book that I picked up recently that I've really been enjoying is called The Overstory hmm. and it's um one I think won a Pulitzer Prize last year but it, it's kind of just fiction about I think it's about trees and nature but interfacing with these short stories of people so it's been really nice book to read <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned reading less because that's exactly what Liz Kellogg said in the previous episode I just recorded. <laughs> <laughs> like you get too busy with science and you get less time to read. Yeah, it's not good because I think it'd be better to be reading more because it, it makes me a better writer, better communicator, more thinking outside of the, the world I live in, which would be fun if you're better at it. <laughs> 
And have you had any time to watch films or TV and anything you can recommend or enjoy this past year? Oh, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I, I feel like we watch different TV shows. Um, I mean, film, the one that just stands out that I just saw was the Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was really mm. cool. I really liked it. I didn't know how I would like it because I'm usually not someone who likes more fantasy, but it's like this interesting take on fantasy and relationships and family dynamics that was really I really liked it and do you like music <laughs> yeah for for music it it varies a lot but I yeah I listen to a lot of different music um probably the the one that people are usually surprised about is I I've been on kind of a metal streak for the last <laughs> few years and so that's the like go-to choice these days is that like what you listen to while you work or just depends exercising like exercising or driving or... <laughs> yeah I mean working in the garden I'll listen to that or you know when I have the lucky chance to use the microscopes myself which I still do oh, sometimes yeah. <laughs> it's usually listening to that kind of music which is I don't know I just like it <laughs> yeah that's what I one of my memories from my lab days is just being alone in the microscope room in the weekend and playing whatever music I wanted to hear <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I don't get to be in the microscope that much, but I still feel like <laughs> I still get a chance to get on it and to tinker or to try and, you know, try different data collection approaches, which <laughs> is usually really satisfying to, to do. And um, this is always a question I like asking people. If you were not a scientist, what would you be? It would definitely be something with food and cooking. And the if there's one type of cooking that I like, it's like fermenting foods. So either sauerkrauts or kimchis or beer or anything, hard cider. So I think it'd be something related to that. And also, also really like coffee. And so we, we roast coffee at my house as well. So something with the interface of food and I guess also <laughs> service. I think maybe it's related to hosting this web server. I don't mind. I like helping people. And so sharing good food or good drink would also be something I'd like to do. Sounds like you'd be running an amazing cafe. <laughs> <laughs> and you could do some cryo-EM in the background. Yeah, <laughs> the cryo-EM cafe. <laughs> and um, so finally, do you have any advice for researchers who are just starting out? I mean, it's a great time to be doing structural biology, especially post-alpha-fold. I think structural biology is is the future. I think the the advice I would have now is finding where can you find connections between experimental structural biology, like single particle X-ray cryotomography mm -hmm. with sort of protein structure modeling and design. And so where can you make a loop? And also where could you make that loop yourself? Like what projects could you do where you could iterate without having to collaborate in a really far way with either some very complicated experiment or some very huge machine learning project? It's where can you, where can you find the interface? But I think sitting at the interface of those two would be really exciting. And I think the future is going back and forth a lot. I think running Cosmic 2 means we've installed and run, we run AlphaFold and all these different protein structure prediction programs and installing and running them made me realize how as like an experimental cryo-EM structural biologist, I don't, I'm out of my depth when it comes to, to sort of the bioinformatics, you know, sequence alignments and all these things that I'm not an expert at. And mm -hmm. so I feel like being able to do both is, feels like a future for structural biology, especially as we think about protein variants, mutations, post-translational modifications, protein conformational changes. If you can be able to relate, let's say an experimental cryo structure that you get back to some protein energetic state to understand 
whether or not you would expect the protein to work like this, I feel like that would be, that'd be really powerful. And I, that's something that I have my eye on for sure. Hmm. That's some really good practical advice. Thanks. Um, so that brings us to the end of our episode today. So thank you, Mike, for joining us. Thank and you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you everyone for listening to or watching CryoTalk. Thank you for listening to CryoTalk, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash cryotalk.